James shows us a faith that works. Good morning. Good to be back. Good to see you guys. Thank you so much for the time off. My wife and I appreciated it so much. I might need to be retrained, though. And uh, it took us about four to five weeks into our sabbatical. So it was an 11-week sabbatical. And it took us about four to five weeks into our sabbatical to start feeling normal again. Does that make sense? Sounds kind of crazy. I was asking her, are you feeling normal? I mean, how are you feeling? She goes, I'm finally kind of starting to feel normal. And I go, praise God. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> and I was like, and uh, so it took us about four to five weeks to start feeling normal again. After eight weeks, we were ready to come back. The last three weeks, it was all we could do to keep from coming back to see you guys. We just really wanted to get back here and, and hang out with you guys. We love you guys so much. But uh, throughout this time, we listened to every one of our messages on Vimeo, and those guys did an outstanding job. Oh, my goodness. We've got, a, we've got a really a deep bench here, don't we? We've got a lot of really good guys and a lot of people, a lot of guys that love the Lord that presented the gospel to us. I thank them so much. And so Nancy and I are now planning our next sabbatical <laughs> as a result of that. But uh, they did a great job. We could hardly wait to uh, each, wherever we were, we were in New York for a while and we were up north and uh, Sunday afternoons, we couldn't wait for Phil to upload it and we'd go online and, and watch it. And it was just, it was fantastic. Uh, we took a road trip up the West Coast, Highway 1, and uh, no time limits, just in our car, no plans, just stopping at every beach city, just in, enjoying the views, the sights, trying to find all the local coffee shops, and just hanging out, just enjoying ourselves. It was good. We took, went all the way up from, uh, starting from Oceanside all the way up into uh, Northern California, uh, Oregon, Seattle, Worked our way all the way up to Victoria, Canada. And then came back through Spokane, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Worked our way back down. Oh my goodness. It was just absolutely beautiful. And uh, then we spent about a week in New York City. One of, our, one of our favorite places to go and hang out. But it was probably one of our best trips we've ever taken there. Nancy ran in a race while she was there. I was her cheerleader and cheering her on. She did a great job. But here's the most important thing that happened to us while we were gone and while we were on this sabbatical is that we feasted on the abundance of his house and drank from his river of delights, as it tells us in Psalm 36. The word delights there actually literally means Eden. So we got a taste of Eden, a taste of heaven. And our souls are satisfied as with fat and rich food because his steadfast love is better, is better than life. That's Psalm 63, and that's what we experienced. That was, that was what was most important to us more than anything else, and our spiritual arsenal has been restocked, and we are locked and loaded, and we hope that we're back now to benefit you guys greatly. So we got a great uh, study here for us this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to James, embarking on a brand new study through the book of James, the faith that works, the book of James, trials we're gonna talk about, James chapter one, verses one through 12. Also, grab your sermon notes out. You can follow along there. Here's the intro statement on your sermon notes. If you ask people who don't believe in God why they don't, why they don't believe in God, the number one reason will be suffering, hardships, trial. If you ask people who believe in God when they grew most spiritually, the number one answer will be suffering, 
suffering hardship, trials. You've heard me say this many times before. I hope that you're able to kind of maybe memorize this because it's really an important truth. It's not what happens to you. It's what happens in you that either makes you or breaks you in life. It's not what happens to you. It's not your circumstances. And I'm not in any way minimizing your circumstances. I know that there are people here that are going through horrible circumstances, and I'm not minimizing those, but it's not your circumstances. It's not what happens to you. It's what happens in you. It's your, not your circumstances. It's your character that either makes you or breaks you in life. And this is the very first topic James addresses in his letter it is a gut punch. He's coming after us. This is what he's dealing with. He deals with trials and our character. In fact, the whole book is about our character. But he addresses this topic of, of, of trials. How do we face trials so that they make us better and not bitter? Listen, you're going to take some hits. Life is filled with suffering. It's all around us. And so it comes down to this. Are you going to become bitter or are you going to become better as a result of those trials, those difficulties, that suffering? It's not what happens to us. It's not those circumstances. It's not the trials. It's not the hardship. It's what happens in us. It's our character that makes us or breaks us. You have a choice. When you go through hardship, it can either make you bitter or better. It comes down to some choices that you must make. Suffering will either soften you or harden you, but it will never leave you the same. So when I think about bitterness, and, and Hebrews tells us a lot about that. Hebrews 12, 15 actually says, the writer of this says, man, I don't want you to miss the grace of God by having a bitter root grow up in your heart, cause trouble and defile many. So it's going to cause trouble in your own life, and it's going to defile other people's lives, and you're going to miss out on the grace of God. And so bitterness is kind of like pride. Pride is one of those things that we tend to, uh, which I think bitterness comes out of pride, but bitterness is, or pride is one of those things that the more you have, the less you see. You don't see it in yourself. And bitterness just kind of works the same way. You can be really, really bitter and not even see it in yourself. And, uh, and I, I, I haven't seen it in my, myself until my wife began to point it out to me. She'd say, ah, that sounds pretty bitter. I was like, ah, no, it isn't. Get off my back. And, <laughs> and so, I mean, I was just demonstrating more bitterness towards her as I was telling her, don't, you know, don't preach to me and don't tell me what to do and, you know, all that. And, and, and then I begin to listen to myself, and I realize my words are a window into my heart, and I begin to hear a lot of bitterness coming from my mouth because of the circumstances that I was in. And so it's really important that you really understand what are the characteristics of a bitter person. In fact, I want you to do that real quick. Turn to the person or the people around you and come up with a couple different characteristics because it's really, really important that you understand this and that you see this, you recognize this. What are the characteristics of a bitter person? And of course, the opposite of that would be a better person. That's what we want to become. So real quick, do that. Just, I'll give you 30 seconds to do that.
Okay, you guys have a good list? You guys able to identify it? I mean, I think hopefully you can. Hopefully, more importantly, that you can identify it within yourself, but you might have to have people in your life to point that out to you, because oftentimes we can't see it. And by the way, we live in a really bitter world. Even in good old God bless America, a lot of bitterness going on. In fact, let me give you my list. And I, I made this kind of this list between the two, bitter, better, and dross versus gold, fire of suffering. Bitter people are hateful people. They're cynical, critical, judgmental. I mean, that's late night talk show host. <laughs> I mean, isn't it? Isn't that most of the news we watch? You know, the opinion news? See, we're swimming in it and we don't even know it. And just look on, look on the news, look on Facebook. It's, there's bitterness, bitterness. You can see it all around us. And then there's, there's selfishness. That would be another characteristic, self-pity, self-absorbed, unforgiving, vengeful, discontent, unmerciful, lack of compassion. I mean, bitter people are hardened people. They have no compassion. And then they're even addictive because they're trying to cover up the pain. They're pursuing and chasing a lot of things because they've got so much pain. Of course, that can be rooted in they're depressed, if you're bitter, you're going to be depressed. You're bummed out about how life's going. You don't like how your life is going. And then, of course, that can even lead to suicide. You can be suicidal. But a better person on the other side would be someone that's loving. Are you becoming more loving? Regardless, regardless of the hits you have taken, you can become a more loving person even because of, in spite of those difficulties. Loving, unselfish, forgiving, content, merciful, in fact, you'll, you'll know how to be merciful to others because of the hits that you've taken. You'll be much better at ministering to others if you become a better person as a result of, of suffering. You're merciful and you're free. There's a freedom because you're filled with joy and peace that really only the gospel can give us. And so here's where we're headed with our study here this morning. What is the book of James all about? Anytime you study a book, you always want to ask uh, really three questions. Who's the author? Who's his audience? And what's his agenda? Kind of gives the foundation for the book. And then the next question we're looking at is what is the true, what is true about trials? So James is going to give us some really good perspective, gospel perspective that we need to know about trials. If we're going to let trials not break us, but make us. Not make us bitter, but make us better in the process. And then what resources do we have for trials? That's the power. So we need gospel perspective. We need gospel power. And he's going to show us that. But first, we're going to pray before we read our text and unpack these notes. Would you bow your heads with me? Once again, let's go before the throne of grace. So Father God, how sweet are your words to our taste. Sweeter than honey to our mouths. We love your word. Open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your word. Search us, O oh God, and know our hearts. Try us and know our thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in us. Show us, reveal to us our bitterness, and lead us in, in the way everlasting. We pray these things in your son's beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Let me read the text. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 
and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits." Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. So, great word. So let's start, first of all, with what is this book all about? What is the book of James all about? The author. Who's the author here? Anybody know? He told us right from the get-go, but you got to know what James this is because you got Peter, James, and John, which were one of the disciples. This is not one of the disciples, and in fact, this is your first fill in the blank on your notes, Jesus' little half-brother James. So this is Jesus' little half-brother James, and, and so let me ask you this question. If you wanted to get dirt on me, who would you talk to? You would talk to my siblings? Talk to my siblings who I grew up with. How about mom? My mom? She, she would say that I have no dirt, okay? <laughs> okay, so maybe you don't want to talk to my mom because she's, but my sisters, my two sisters, yeah, talk to them. How about Nancy? She's got a truckload of dirt on me, okay? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, take a look at this. Uh, John 7, 5, it tells us about Jesus' little half-brother James for not even his brothers believed in him. And then we just read here in James chapter 1, verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. What? He's calling his older brother Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, Master, Christ, Messiah. You know how much I would have paid to have my siblings call me Messiah? Our master, yep, that's right, I'm, I'm your master. Now get in there and clean my room for me. I mean, that's what he's doing here. This is crazy. Now what would cause Jesus' little half-brother James to believe Jesus is God? Because that's what he's saying. What, what would it take? How about watching your brother die a horrible death, resurrect in three days, and then show up at your front door? and then watch him ascend to heaven. That's pretty convincing, I would say the least. In 1 Corinthians 15, 7, it tells us that Jesus, post-resurrection, after he had resurrected from the grave, he showed himself to some 500 people and he appeared to James, his brother. He did. And James was convinced he's the Messiah. 
Now, that's, that's pretty significant. James is one of the earliest letters written. It was written mid-A.D. 40s. A.D. 40s. A.D. is Latin phrase, Anno Domini, which means in the year of the Lord. So what year did Jesus die? He died A.D. 30 to 33. So we're talking, this is a letter that was written within 10 to 15 years after the resurrection of Christ. He's an eyewitness, and he didn't believe in Jesus. And now he proclaims him as Savior and Lord and Master. That's pretty significant. That's the letter we're reading. Now, who's the audience? The audience are Christians scattered from persecution. There's your fill in the blanks. Christians scattered from persecution. Look at verse 1 again, the 12 tribes in the dispersion. 12 tribes is Old Testament language for God's people, so he's speaking to Christians. And we also know this idea of persecution. After the stoning of Stephen in Acts 7, Stephen was the first Christian martyr. After that, Christians were scattered from Jerusalem, and we see that in Acts 8. So they're being scattered throughout Jerusalem. It's God's way of getting the gospel to spread because they wanted to kind of be in their little holy huddle there in Jerusalem, and God allowed persecution to come and begin to scatter them throughout the region. And so he's writing to those who are scattered because of persecution, people who have been run from their own homes. And so he's speaking to them. He's writing this. So what's the agenda of the book? Well, we titled, titled it with uh, the agenda of the book, Faith That Works. Faith That Works. Two key verses, actually, for the whole book, James 2.17 and James 2.26, 17.26, chapter 2 of James. Maybe you're familiar with this verse. Maybe you've used it before. It goes like this. Faith, apart from works, is what? It's dead, yeah. It's dead. So faith that works. And here's what James is saying. If you have encountered the resurrected Christ Jesus as I have, your life will not be the same. In fact, this is what your life will look like. And he wrote it down for us. That's what this whole book is about. If you have encountered him and you're walking in vital union and communion with him, it's going to transform your life. And this is what your life will look like as a result of that. Now, we all know that we are saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone, but always accompanied by works. That's why he says faith apart from works is dead. James is trying to get across the point through this book that you cannot encounter the risen Christ Jesus and walk in vital union and communion with him and remain the same. He will radically transform your life. If you have been walking with Jesus for one year, two years, five years, 10 years, 15 years, I'm telling you, your life should be different from when you first started. And even a few years ago, your life today should be different from just a few years ago from today. If you are walking with him, and James spells that out for us, he's going to show us that. Now, let me give you a quick warning here, and that is we're not going to be preoccupied with trying to be like Jesus, because the book is about being like Jesus. But that's not our preoccupation. That should never be our preoccupation. We're going to learn some things about what it means to be like Jesus, but what we need to be preoccupied with more than anything 
is not being like Jesus, but being with Jesus. Because the more you are with Jesus, the more you will become like Jesus. And you will certainly get glimpses of being with Jesus throughout the book. So we want to focus in on that, only to use that being like Jesus as kind of a checklist to say, hey, you know what? I'm not like Jesus, so what do I need to do? Well, you don't focus on that and create this kind of attitude of moralism. No, you get back to being with Jesus. Because when you are with Jesus, believe me, you will be like him. He will transform your life. And so when I find myself not being like him, what do I do? Beat myself up. I'm going to try harder. No, I get with Jesus. I get with him. I spend time with him, and he begins to transform my heart in those specific areas where I'm struggling. That's important to keep that in mind. There were times on our sabbatical that Nancy and I enjoyed God's presence so much that we didn't want to leave. Now, we had to work hard to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives and slow down enough to marvel at the mystery and the majesty of God. If you're kind of like us, that uh, achievement and performance is an idol, you're going to miss out on the best thing about the Christian life, and that's being with Jesus and marveling at his majesty and mystery and all that he is. On our trip up that north coast, or south, it was, it was north California, west coast, up, up high, uh, north California, you, there are the redwoods. Anybody ever been to the redwoods? My wife would to, told me about it. She was, oh, man, we got to go through the redwoods. We got to make sure we take a trip there. And I go, ah, oh, redwoods, whatever. Uh, they're just like any other woods and uh, like any other forest. And guess what? They're not. She tried to tell me that, but I wouldn't listen. And I got in there. We went in there, and those trees, I mean, the, the base of those trees, are as, there's some that are as big as this stage up here, the base, and the, they go so high like skyscrapers, higher than skyscrapers in New York City. It's breathtaking, the majesty, the mystery of God displayed through creation. We were in awe as we hiked back through there, and yet we knew, we knew that it was a dim glimpse of the mystery and the majesty of our creator who put them there, and so we knew that it was, it was a gift and a pointer to him, and it gave us opportunity to be with him. Now, by the way, you can have and experience that mystery and majesty without going to the Redwoods, okay? And it's just a matter of just being with Jesus in his words, hanging out with other fired-up Christians, worshiping him. And, uh, and so you can do that. You don't need to go there. But that was just a great reminder for us. Let me ask you this question. When, when was the last time you were awestruck? You were awestruck. by the wealth of his presence, the privilege that as a believer in Jesus Christ, you have his presence, the wealth of his presence, the comfort of his love, the strength of his power. Oh my goodness, that, that's ours through Christ Jesus. And believe me, you spend time with him, when you're with Jesus, you're gonna become like Jesus. And so James is pointing that out to us. So what is true about trials? Because that's the first thing that he's going to deal with here. And so what's true about trials? What about our perspective so that, so that trials will make us and not break us? 
we need a biblical perspective. We need a biblical perspective. Now, here's, I know this is going to sound really crazy to you, but I'm thinking, you know, you have crazy ideas about what, I've never taken a sabbatical before. It's been 27 years, the first time we've ever taken a sabbatical. Most time we've ever taken off was a couple weeks. In 27 years, so we're on this sabbatical 11 weeks. And so here's my expectations that Nancy and I are going to go out, take off, go out on some deserted island somewhere, her and I and Jesus, all by ourselves, immune to any suffering or problems or pain or difficulties. Does that sound crazy? Actually sounds like something you'd like to do, huh? But yeah, I just want to be out all by myself away from... And, and what was fascinating about this is that I thought that we would be kind of sheltered from any problems or trials, but Nancy and I experienced more trials in the last two months than what we've experienced in the last two years of our life both from the news that we heard from the suffering that was going on here at Desert Breeze. And they, I think they tried to protect us, but there were people still contacting us. I'm telling you, there were some really horrible things that happened while we were gone here in our church family, that people's lives were really, went through suffering and it, and it broke our hearts. And then we had our own share of things that we were working through and struggling. I'm thinking, God, I'm on a sabbatical. Cut me some slack, okay? He goes, I'm working on your life. I love you. I'm stripping you of everything you think you need. I'm the one that you need more than anything. He began to strip me during this time. It was amazing. It was amazing work. I, I don't fully understand it. I wish I could have not had to go through a, a lot of that stuff. But, but expectations play a part in our perspective. You know, so, so as we look at as we, as we look at the trials coming in our life, we have certain perspective, but our expectations play a role, a role in, our, in our perspective. And it's not what happens to us, not our circumstances, but what happens in us. It's our character, and our character has a lot to do with our perspective and our expectations. I mean, let me explain expectations to you, kind of how it works. It works like this. And if I were to take you into a room, before I took you into that room, I said, this is a honeymoon suite. Okay, you go, oh, okay. Probably have real high expectations. Honeymoon suite, yep. Let's go in there. So you go in there and you go, mm, not quite what I thought. But if I took you into that very same room, before we went into that room, I said, this is a jail cell. And you went into that room, you might say, mm, not so bad. Not so bad. Jail cell. Those of you that are married, what were your expectations? Soulmate, she, he, my soulmate, not quite what I expected. Cellmate, not so bad, not so bad, she's been my cellmate for 40 years, praise God. Yeah, Nancy and I, we're cellmates. Expectations. What are your expectations? I know that some of you knew that I was going to be back this weekend, and I, I knew that some of you were thinking, this is going to really be good. He's been gone for two months. And then others of you were thinking, this isn't going to be so good. He's been away for two <laughs> months. Others of you didn't even know that I was gone. Expectations. 
What are your expectations? It's not the events of life, but your evaluation of those events that make you feel and respond the way you feel and respond to those events. It's not the events that make you feel the way you feel and the way you're responding to those events. It's your evaluation. It's your perspective. It's your expectations that are all playing into that. That's why I should have made this a major point because we're going to get to the points for more fill in the blanks, but this should have been one of the points on the notes. That's why he says in verse 2, he says, count it all joy. That's a gut punch when you're going through a hard time. That's the last thing you want to hear someone say. Hey, count it all joy. Come over here. I'm going to work you over. I'll show you joy. I mean, that's how you feel when he's saying that. It's like, whoa, what is he talking about here? It took me a while as I worked through this. The word, the Greek word is deem, account, or think. It's an accounting term. It's a command. He's commanding us, count it all joy when you face trials of many kinds. Here's what he's saying here is that a healthy biblical perspective will lead you to joy. So it's not the events of life that make you, make you feel and behave the way you feel and behave. It's your evaluation. It's your perspective. It's your, it's your expectations that make you feel and behave the way you feel and behave. And if you have a biblical worldview, it will lead you to joy. That's what he's saying. It's not what happens to you. Your circumstances, it's what happens in you. It's your character, and your character has to do with your perspective and your expectations and the way that you're evaluating the circumstances of life. See, the opposite of joy is not sadness, it's hopelessness. So the Bible talks about that we can be still sad because we're going to grieve, and yet we don't grieve like the world grieves because we have, we have hope that we're going to take some hits in life Though as a believer in Jesus Christ, we can count it all joy because this joy gives us a buoyancy in life. Though life can push you down, it can't keep you down because you have this buoyancy and it's based on the pleasures that you find in the eternal privileges that are yours through Christ Jesus. You have not thought deep enough about your faith. That's the reason why you have hopelessness in your life. That's what he's talking about here. If you feel hopeless about any person, thing, or circumstance, it's because you don't have a healthy biblical perspective. That's what he's saying. Count it all joy. Think out the implications of your faith, and it will lead you to joy, regardless of what's going on in your life. Here's another way that I put it in the notes, using this kind of an accounting perspective, and that's what that word means. If you run the total at the bottom of the ledger sheet at any point in your life and it doesn't add up to joy, it's because you have forgotten to add God into the equation. See, the assets we have in the gospel will always be greater than any liabilities we experience in this life. If you think otherwise, it's because you're not thinking you have forgotten what you have in Christ Jesus. I know that there are those that are going through really a hard time here 
There are those of you that will go through a hard time. Some of you have just come out of a hard time. And what James is telling us, he's saying, if you could see what God is up to in your trials, if you could get a glimpse into your, your hardship, your suffering, your difficulties, you would be grateful even if the cancer comes back or the career never works out or the friend never reconciles. If you know that God is for you and with you, you can face any kind of suffering. That's what he's saying. That's why he says, count it all joy. Think out the implications of what you have in Christ Jesus and what he's provided for you. God is at work in the worst of times doing a thousand things for our good and his glory that we can't see with our finite minds. You can trust his perfect love, infinite wisdom, and unlimited power working for your good and his glory. That's what you've got to focus on. That's what you've got to look at. He's for you. By the way, uh, that's, uh, that's, that's actually when you understand, that's just gospel logic. I, I don't trust him because I see his hand in my circumstances. I trust him because I see his heart on the cross. I'm like, my goodness, if he did that for me, he's got all the other bases covered. That's why James is saying, count it all joy. You might take it as a gut punch, but it's not. It's meant to lift your sights. Look to see what you have in him. Gospel logic. Romans 8, 31 and 32. If God is for you, who can be against you? He who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him freely give us all things? He's got all the bases covered. If you could see what he was, is up to in your circumstances, oh my goodness, you would celebrate. Oh God, give us eyes to see. Perspective. Okay, let me give you some fill in the blanks here. Here's what he says. So trials are inevitable, unpredictable, and multidimensional. Trials are inevitable, unpredictable, and multidimensional. We see that. So after he says, count it all joy, my brothers, he says, when you meet trials of various kinds, when. Notice he says when, not if. So they're inevitable. They're going to happen. You live in a fallen world. You're going to experience suffering. That's just a matter of fact. So when. And he also says, when you meet trials, the word there is unpredictable. I'm the kind of guy that likes to plan ahead. And, and having been on the fire department, I'm into prevention, Okay. I like to prevent tragedies, but he's just saying you're going to have tragedies that are going to blindside you. They're going to come out of nowhere. You're going to go, I didn't see that one coming. Nope. He talked about it right here in the book. Unpredictable. Because typically those of us that like to keep all of our ducks in a row, we think we can prevent all of that stuff. But he says, well, there's things out there that are unpreventable. They're going to take you out. That's what he's saying. Count it all joy, my brothers, when, not if, you meet trials. They're unpredictable. And then he says, of various kinds. I mean, he's running, I mean, he's running the full gamut of, of problems, all the way from, from minor irritations to major crisis. He's just saying every kind of trial. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. So we're on this road trip. And one of the mornings when we were on the coast, we got up early and I got out to the car. By the way, when it was 115 here, it was like 50 degrees there, okay? Just not to rub it in. Had to have a jacket on. But my car went like this. And it started to go, oh my goodness, our battery's going. We're out in the middle of nowhere. And so I told my wife, I said, we're going to keep our car started for the rest of the trip. Okay, she goes, that sounds unreasonable. 
Yeah, no, I, I just said for most of the day because we knew that we were going to be going to a lot of touristy places where there wasn't, uh, you know, a lot of people, a lot of public. I said, so if we go out there, we don't want to be stranded. So when we go in, we run into the bathroom. You go into the bathroom and come back out, and then I'll go in the bathroom and just keep the car going the whole day. Okay? Good plan. And so uh, we had to go inland a bit because of Big Sur because there was, uh, after all of their fires and flooding, it washed out the road. So we had to come inland to Santa Rosa, got to Santa Rosa, pulled in front of uh, AutoZone and turned the car off and then turned it back on and started right up. We go, oh, maybe we don't need a battery after all. So we headed down the road. <laughs> you guys are already going, no, you goofball. Thank you very much. And... Um, and so we went to the service station, filled it up, and lo and behold, as I tried to start, it went <coughs> I go, oh, brother. You know, we're on this road trip. It, it, it would be classified as kind of a minor irritation problem. Don't certainly want to be stranded in Santa Rosa, although it's a beautiful place. And went around asking everybody there uh, to help jump us. Nobody had any jumper cables. And finally, a, a gal that was over there overheard us, a little sweet gal, little angel sent from God, came over and said, hey, I got some jumper cables. I'll jump you. Oh, fantastic. Pulled her truck up, jumped us, started right up. And we tried to give her some money to go get a coffee. She said, no, I didn't do that for that. And it was all cool. So we went down to the auto zone and went there and don't have any tools. I'm stranded here. The guy said, we got all the tools. So anyway, we got a new battery, hit the road again. That was minor. It was minor. There was a number of other things that happened. One other thing that happened, too, was that uh, the very last hotel that we stayed at as we were coming out of Utah and heading back to Phoenix, Arizona, we were going to come back through Utah. And then, and um, actually, it was, yeah, I think it was Utah. No, actually, it was uh, Idaho. And then we were going through Utah. I, I, the last hotel we were in, I left three pairs of shoes in that hotel, lost them. Three pairs of shoes. And, uh, and some of you are thinking, how many pairs of shoes do you take with you? It's like, what the heck? Is this guy high maintenance or what? Does he have more shoes than Nancy? That's what you guys were thinking. Get off my back. Do I have to explain it to you? I had flip-flops, I had running shoes, and I had dress shoes, and I had my driving shoes. I lost three pairs of shoes at the last hotel. I called them up. Nope, we haven't found them. Yeah, somebody found them. That's $150 worth of shoes. And, and I could have, you know, those are those minor irritations that put on display your faith or lack thereof, though Nancy was the last one in the room. She should have saw them. I was so tempted to say, well, you're the last one in the room. You lost my shoes, but I didn't. Praise God, because I had been with Jesus. And I had a different attitude, believe me. I was like, oh, whatever, they're just dang shoes. I'll get some more. They were my favorite. Okay, so those are kind of like, he's talking about, but that was minor. All of that, what I just said, is minor compared to some of the th stories we came, came out of Desert Breeze and the loss, the loss of loved one, the loss of life, the struggle, the stage four cancer diagnosis and even the things that we begin to experience in our own life with our, with our relatives. That was, that's what he's talking about here. This is what Jesus said to his disciples, John 16, 33. This is the night he's gonna be betrayed and be hanging on the cross. And he's trying to give them some last minute advice and things. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. 
but take heart, I have overcome the world. That's, that's why I cling to Jesus right there. That's why I spend time with him, because I want to be able to overcome the world. I don't want to be overcome by the world. I want to overcome the world, and, and I will as long as I'm close to him. And so trials are inevitable, unpredictable, and multidimensional. Trials test my faith. There's, that's the next one. Trials test my faith. Notice what he says in verse 4. For you know the testing of your faith. For you know the testing of your faith. Testing. Testing is a word with connotations of smelting. So that word testing means smelting. Turn to the person next to you and see if they even know what smelting is. Real quick, see if they know. Smelting. What's smelting? What is smelting? I heard someone, I think I heard someone say that smelting it happens when it's 115 degrees out and you forgot to put on your deodorant. <laughs> you smelt. Okay, actually, okay, that's not actually what smelting is. Uh, smelting is this, if you apply enormous heat to ore, the precious metals like silver and gold are purified and the worthless metals like dross get burned up and fall away. That's smelting. And so that's what he's saying, testing, the testing of your faith, the smelting of your faith. It's under the fire is what he's saying. Matt Trusella was in the service last night, one of our board of elders, and he said, gold is worthless and a sword is useless without being in the fire, without it going through the fire. Trials are a furnace that will reveal the quality of your faith. Trials, difficulties. Now think about this. All the way from minor irritations dead batteries, loss of shoes, to divorce, disease, stage four cancer diagnosis. Trials are a furnace that will reveal the quality of your faith. What's the quality of your faith? Well, you could tell me you got great faith, but I'll find out, and you will too. Go through trials. That's what James is saying. See, are you bitter about the past? Are you grumbling about the present? Are you worrying about the future? See, it's revealing, it's revealing the quality of your faith. Trials reveal if your relationship with God is real. So we had some uh, new folks move into our neighborhood and they're kind of catty corner to us and uh, they just recently bought some free-range chickens. And guess what free-range those chickens love? It ain't their yard. It ain't my neighbor's yards either. It's my yard. And at first I didn't think anything of it. Oh, look at those. Those are, man, those are big old chickens. Those are big chickens. Look at those chickens. Oh, that's so nice until those chickens started digging holes in my yard. Holes so big, I could bury them in. I mean, they're just not just like pecking, like like you think of chickens. These things are like big old holes. So we went online to figure out how you get rid of these free-range chickens. Whose idea is free-range? I don't care if they're free-range eggs or not. I just like eggs. You know, it's just weird, but, but 
But anyway, we thought, they probably don't even know they're coming over here, and so I'm not going to go over and irritate them, and we want to be nice neighbors and, and all of that. So we started reading out, and I said, yeah, get a hose out and spray them when they come over to your house. I'm thinking more like gun. Get a gun out. I'll spray them all right. But we started spraying them. And I thought, that's kind of pushing a little bit. If they look across the street and see we're spraying their chickens, get out of here. And they would. They saw me coming, and those chickens were like, whoo. They, they looked funny. Because after a while, they were like, as soon as they saw me coming up the, you know, up the driveway, they're like, getting out of there. Here comes that mean dude. And so I was just thinking, and so finally, push came to shove, I thought, because I was spending hours patching up my lawn, and it was just trashing it horribly. So Sunday morning, a couple weeks ago, towards the end of our sabbatical, um, it was 8 o'clock in the morning, I got up, and I looked out my front, and they're out there ripping my front yard apart. I says, okay, that's it. I'm going next door, and I'm going to have to tell them. And I was nice about it. I rang the doorbell. It was 8 o'clock in the morning, and it was almost like nobody was up. Sunday morning. They don't go to church, apparently. <laughs> the guy came to the door, big dude, and I said, hey, you know, you know your chickens? They're wiping out my yard. He goes, those, and he used some expletive. He says, yeah, those chickens are a pain in the expletive. And so I said, hey, you know what? I could help you build a pen for them or whatever. Yeah, I know. We're, we're trying to build one right now and whatever. And so I said, I'd help you out, but... Anyway, he said, I'm sorry. Okay, no big deal. It's, you know, it's just, it's just my front lawn. And, uh, <laughs> and so I left. Nancy felt bad. We woke him up. She baked him some cookies, and we took him over there at the end of the day. And, um, and then they brought us, a couple days later, they brought us a flower pot. And so we got a good relationship with them. But here's the issue, and I know that years ago, I would have been really ticked. I would have gone over there and given a piece of my mind. You know, I would have gone, you, what the heck is wrong with you guys? You know, but because I have been with Jesus, I was more concerned about their salvation than my dang yard. See, that's a matter of perspective. I even asked Nancy, hold me accountable here. I'm going to go talk to them, but I want to be kind and nice about it. But I still need to speak the truth to them. And they were cool about it. They built a pen. And we're, we're great friends. They've been coming over, and we've been interacting back and forth. But it really comes down to your faith is being revealed by how you respond to the difficulties of your life. Fortunately, I'd been on a sabbatical, so I was pretty nice. <laughs> Sorry. It's true. That's why you got to take time off. I don't know how it would have been if before the sabbatical. I might have been a little bit crazy putting on display my, my lack of faith. It's revealing the quality of your faith. 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary. He's talking about you rejoice in, in all that God is for you. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the test of genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, it perishes, though it is tested by fire. Did you hear that? So that the test of genuineness, your trials are testing the genuineness of your faith. Do you have a relationship with God? Are you with him? like you say you are, because it will be displayed through the difficulties of life so that the test of genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold. That relationship with God is better than all the money in the world. That's what he's saying, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire. Gold, it's all, all that stuff's temporal. He's talking eternal here. May be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
The greatest issue in the book of Job, you guys are familiar with the book of Job? It's the book, it's a book on the sovereignty of God and suffering. And Job goes through crazy stuff, horrible suffering. And the great issue, it's a book that's just before the book of Psalms in the Old Testament. But the great issue in the book of Job is, does Job love God more than God's gives? So your test of faith, do you love God more than his gifts? Do I love God more than my front lawn? Do I love the people across the street more than my front lawn? Do you love him because he makes life better or do you love him because he is better than life? Is the good life more about things going better or is it about knowing God better? What if having things not go better helped you to know him better? Believe me, if you knew him better, it wouldn't matter if your life ever got better. If you knew him better, it doesn't matter whether your life ever gets better because you have him. Here's the next thing, trials, and this is what it produces. Trials will produce holiness and happiness. Holiness is character. Happiness is contentment in Christ. If I don't give up, there's the steadfastness, verses three through four. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, so let steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Lacking in nothing. So that perfect, complete, lacking in nothing is holiness and happiness. It's the best way for me to describe it. But I can't give up. I've got to develop steadfastness. These are the words on the wall at Speed and Strength University where Nancy and I go. Some of you go also with Drew Bohannon who attends here. These are the words that says, no, N-O, struggle, no progress. No struggle, no progress. No, K-N-O-W, struggle, no, K-N-O-W, progress. If you want progress, you're going to have to go through some struggle. Now, the thing I like about... Uh, having him as our personal trainer is that he doesn't coddle us. I wish he would. Okay, no, I don't actually. He coaches us. Suck your gut in, bend your knees. You can do more than that. You can, I mean, he gets, he gets at us. He's on us. He's pushing us. Why? Because he has our best interest at heart. That's what it's saying here in this. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Listen, God doesn't coddle us. He comforts us, but he coaches us, and God wants to strengthen us. He wants to develop perseverance in us, the steadfastness. Let me give you what steadfastness is. Steadfastness, the Greek word is hupomone. It's hyperstand or to stand fast. It's perseverance. It's not... It's not just patience. Actually, some translations use the word patience. I, I don't think it's appropriate. I think it's a wrong, unless you define it. But it's actually perseverance. Patience is more passive. We were on a flight to New York when we went over to New York, and uh, it was a two, two hours delay, and then when we came back, it was like four hours delay. In fact, we were coming into the valley, and it was a big uh, monsoon blowing into the valley, and so they had to divert to Albuquerque to, to refuel. So our flight ended up lasting. It should have only been about four and a half hours, about nine-hour flight. And I heard the pilot say, thank you for your patience. And I'm thinking, what else are we going to do? 
And uh, I mean, so patience is very, it's, it's very passive. And um, really, I mean, what else are you gonna do? You just, you're gonna just kinda have to wait. Uh, and and you, do, you do it when you can't do anything else. But steadfastness means to plant your feet and to withstand whatever comes against you. It's very proactive. All throughout ancient literature, this Greek word, uh, hupomone, steadfastness, appears when commanders in a, a battle would tell their soldiers to man their post. And no matter what comes your direction, plant your feet and refuse to give up or give in. So here's, here's what spiritual growth, and this is what the whole book's about. Spiritual growth and maturity is getting to the place where no matter what happens to you or what you go through, you trust and treasure Christ above all. And that's holiness and, and happiness. Beloved, do not be surprised by the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This is 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. See, when we go through hard times, when things go wrong in our life, we tend to ask three questions. Why is this happening? Here's the second question. What can I do about this? Third question. How can I persuade God to make things better? Let me answer all of those for you. What is, why is this happening? For your holiness and happiness in him. What can I do about it? Surrender to his work. How can I persuade God to make things better? Ask boldly, but surrender completely to him making you better. When we ask God to take away suffering, we are asking him to remove those things he is using to make us more holy and happy in him. Holiness is being so happy in Jesus that sin loses its overpowering appeal and suffering loses its overwhelming effect in our lives. And I want you to be so happy in Jesus that even if you were to lose everything, you wouldn't lose your happiness because you have him. And that's what the game of life is all about. If you've never gone through the game of life, we kick it off this Tuesday. I get a chance to teach that. And I would encourage you to sign up because we help you to find your pleasure in God more than anything else. We're going to end our study right there. And let me end with a story. I... I vowed to not uh, to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from my life. And so part two, next week, you're going to have to come back for the next part of this, okay? And so let me give you the fill in the blanks, and then I'm going to give you a story, and then we're finished up. But uh, what resources do we have for our trials? This is the power. You'll have to come back, and we'll talk about this. The gospel gives us wisdom, gives us wealth, gives us wholeness. And that's the resources of power. So let me, let me just... Briefly talk about this idea of steadfastness, verses 3, 4, and 12, hupomone, perseverance or endurance. Let me give you two examples. Here's the first example. According to church history in A.D. 62, the religious leaders in Jerusalem, enemies of the gospel, took James, the writer here, took James to the pinnacle of the temple and said, there are too many people becoming Christians, so we want you to tell people to stop turning to Christ. James looked out in, in a great display of steadfastness and boldly said, Why do you ask me about the Son of Man? He dwells in heaven and at the right hand of the mighty power. He will come in clouds of heaven. He refused to denounce his older brother as God and Lord and Messiah. In anger, they threw him off. He, felt, he fell to the ground but wasn't 
Dead yet, beaten and broken, he twisted to his knees, began to pray for the forgiveness of his enemies, just as his older brother Jesus had. And at that point, they came down, they stoned him and beat him over the head with a fuller's bat until he was dead. And this is the one who says, consider it all joy. Now, why was James able to do that? I believe it was because he was an eyewitness of the greatest example of perseverance found in Hebrews 12, 2, where it says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured, hupomone, endured perseverance, endured the cross for our behalf, for you and I, scorning its shame, seated on the right hand, right on the right arm of God, ruling and reigning. Let's just take a moment and prayerfully reflect on that truth. Would you bow your heads with me? If you're new here to Desert Breeze, I'd love to meet you up here at the front at the end of the service. If you have any questions about this message, I'd love to answer those questions for you. And if you need prayer for any reason, I'd love to pray with you right here at the front at the end of our time together. So thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for enduring the cross for us in the greatest act of love in the history of the world. All the weight of eternal justice for our sin that we deserve came down on you. And as a result, we are forgiven, reconciled, adopted, lavished with your love, empowered by your Holy Spirit, guaranteed a place in heaven. So out of love for the one who stood fast for us, may we stand fast for him. Everybody look up here just for a moment. Let me give you a blessing as you exit here today. So as it says, listen to me, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters. When you uh, face trials of many kinds, knowing this, that the trying of your faith produces perseverance, so let perseverance have its perfect work in you so that you might be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing, holy and happy in Jesus for his glory in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Love you guys.